It is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper? A woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver. I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, void, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. When people in Washington talk about the debt ceiling, they use a lot of metaphors. In the last week, as Democrats and Republicans fought over whether and how to pay the U.S. government's outstanding bills, the president first said the looming debt ceiling was a meteor headed to crash into our economy. Then he accused Republicans of playing Russian roulette over the debt limit. But none of this tells you very much about what the debt ceiling's all about. Or what exactly is going to change on October 18th when Treasury Secretary Janet Yellen says the U.S. is going to default on its loans? So I asked Slate's Jordan Weissman to give it a try. Let's do a thought experiment. Looking ahead like a couple weeks into the future, if the debt limit hasn't been raised, what does the world look like? Like, am I walking around, there's just garbage fires everywhere, abandoned cars, post-apocalyptic vibes? What's what's the deal? Are we going full Thunderdome if we go over the debt limit is what you're asking? Um, That's what I'm asking. I think the honest answer is it would be quite bad. It would be quite ugly. It would be painful at best and potentially cataclysmic at worst. But we we don't know exactly how things would unfold. We don't know what will happen if the government can't borrow more money, simply because for the last hundred years or so, the U.S. has done everything in its power to avoid that outcome. We've come close to going over the edge. Back in 2011, during this specially contentious debt limit fight, the Fed actually started making contingency plans. Years later transcripts of their meetings emerged, and they offered these clues of what hitting the debt ceiling now could actually mean. They were not going to let the U.S. default on its debts. The problem is that, okay, even if you do for a while manage to pay back your bondholders, you essentially have to stop paying other government programs. You have to halt payments for Social Security and Medicare and veterans benefits and all sorts of other things. And so it's just this massive just you know, destabilizing blow to the entire economy, we would end up in a pretty severe, you know, recession. <laughs> and and that and the wheels of government would just grind to a halt. I mean, it would be it would be very, very bad. There have been estimates that government spending would have to be slashed by forty percent or so <laughs> immediately if we went over the debt limit. What you're saying is that if we went over the debt limit, this <laughs> This argument would no longer be abstract for a lot of Americans. They wouldn't be seeing their benefit checks. Right. Like, seniors would suddenly be a lot poorer. Like, you'd you'd be in trouble. So this is what Washington is debating. Whether we get ourselves into a position where suddenly we have to decide, who do we pay? The retiree who needs Social Security benefits? Or the bank who needs to cash in some Treasury bonds? So raising the debt limit is really important. 
It's it's really important. And everyone agrees on this, right? Like Mitch McConnell, Chuck Schumer, people at opposite ends of the spectrum. Yeah, everybody agrees. Mitch McConnell has said, we definitely need to lift the debt limit. So why haven't we done anything about it? You know, th- this entire conflict really boils down to political gamesmanship. Today on the show, the political game of chicken behind a potential economic crash. It turns out we don't have to deal with our debt this way. I'm Mary Harris. You're listening to What Next. Stick around. This episode is brought to you by Discover. When it comes to your finances, Discover wants you to know they are the credit card that is always there for you. With 24-7 U.S.-based live customer service, Everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, that means no more waiting for, quote, normal business hours just to get a hold of someone. We are talking real service from real people whenever you need it. Get the customer service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. Before we get into this conflict over the debt ceiling... I think it's worth asking, why does the U.S. have so much debt to begin with? The glib answer I'm going to offer, slightly glib answer, is that the Republican Party has been wildly irresponsible about taxing and spending since 2000, uh, essentially, since the Bush administration. We ended the 1990s with a budget surplus, right? Like, debt was no longer really an issue. We were wondering what we were going to do with all these revenues we had. That was a Bill Clinton thing, right? Yeah, exactly, right? You know, there was a whole debate between George W. Bush and Al Gore. It's like, well, are we going to use it to, like, make sure Social Security is good and put it in a lockbox, or are we going to, you know, do a big tax cut? As for the surest way to threaten our prosperity, having a a $1.9 trillion tax cut, almost half of which goes to the wealthy, and a $1 trillion Social Security privatization proposal is the surest way to put our our budget into deficit, raise interest rates, and put our prosperity at risk. I can't let the man continue with fuzzy math. It's $1.3 trillion, Mr. Vice President. And the Republican Party, you know, or sorry, George W. Bush won. He did a big tax cut. He actually did two big tax cuts and launched the Iraq War. Expensive things. Yeah, he did. He, did the, he, he launched the Iraq War and Afghanistan and then also did a big expansion of, of uh, Medicare that wasn't really paid for, uh, the Medicare prescription drug benefit. And then the debt continued to rise in, you know, a- after the fi- financial crisis because tax revenues took a massive hit during the recession, right? Like just <laughs> like people were poor, businesses were making less money, people were making less money, there was less to tax. At the same time, the Obama administration wanted to spend to stimulate the economy, which I think, you know, most mainstream economists agree was the responsible thing to do in that situation because it could have been wor- it would have been much worse if we hadn't. Um, but that led to some fairly uh, substantial budget deficits over the years that followed. And then you got the Trump administration, which didn't care about deficits at all for the most part. They did a, a big deficit financed tax cut. Um, we all remember that. The premise of the fight going on right now on Capitol Hill, it seems to be that more debt is inherently bad. But Jordan, For the record, he is not convinced that is true. Treasury bonds, which is how the U.S. takes out its debt, they're what allow businesses domestically and abroad to flourish because they basically amount to a risk-free investment. And while huge spending on our government's part might not sound fiscally responsible. The key thing here is that 
the U.S., even though it has all this debt, you know, it sounds like a big number, $23 trillion or whatever, it's not – there's no fiscal crisis. We're not, we, we can pay all of it. It's not actually a big – you know, if you look at our debt payments as a share of GDP, they're, they're near historic lows, which is actually the most important number. It's not how much debt you have. It's how much you have to pay to bondholders each month that matters. And because interest rates are so low, our, our payments are totally manageable. And that could change in the future, but it just – there's – we have a lot of debt, but that doesn't mean we have a debt crisis. Something else that might surprise you is that America is one of just a few countries to have a debt limit at all. It sets us up for this political back and forth we're seeing right now. Every president since Dwight D. Eisenhower has had to sign at least one bill to raise the debt ceiling. It's Groundhog Day, a very, very stressful version of it. Yeah, I mean, you wrote that Congress is in the midst of a standoff now over the debt limit that is improbably somehow even more inane and exasperating than the ones Americans have previously been forced to endure. Yes, you never really had these doomsday scenarios until 2011. So I think it makes sense to go back and, and look at, like, how we got here. Like, you mentioned 2011. What happened then that changed things? So the 2011 debt limit standoff was really a result of having a new, very extreme wing of the Republican Party sweep into Congress in the 2010 midterms. You know, the Tea Partiers. And we should, like, set the scene here. Like, the president's Barack Obama, and all of a sudden in the midterms, there's this rush of new blood, and it's very conservative. Extremely conservative, sort of radicalized. Um, they are they they run on this platform of slashing government spending. You know, you have all the people running around with pocket constitutions and wearing tri-corner hats and yada yada yada. <laughs> and and so you had the, this extremist Tea Party faction show up. This is John Boehner's biggest test as Speaker of the House. He's got to convince those Tea Party Republicans to support his plan to raise the debt ceiling. Eventually, Obama and the Republicans reached a deal where there was going to be a committee that looked at ways to reduce the deficit and you know balance the budget eventually. And if the committee's recommendations weren't followed, then you were going to have what was known as a sequester, essentially these across-the-board spending cuts. $1.2 trillion in spending cuts just slammed across the board, coming our way like an 18-wheeler. So according to the Office of Management and Budget, the report leaves no question that the sequestration would be deeply destructive to national security, domestic investments, and core government functions. So Obama acceded, and this is kind of a, this story, I've heard it before, because a lot of people have looked back at this and said, making that kind of agreement was problematic because it sets us up for where we are now, which is you can just raise your hand and say, you know, I resist. And all of a sudden now we're scrambling to accommodate you. Right. It kind of made the debt ceiling fair game. And, uh, you know, and again, a, a few years later, 2013, we had another standoff. Eventually that got resolved as well, but it, it set the stage for, for the debt ceiling to become a periodic problem. The reason I said this episode is even more inane and, and frustrating than the ones that came before is that there are really almost no policy demands attached to this. The Republicans are not saying, we want you to do X. They are not asking for anything from the Biden administration. What is happening here is that Republicans are simply saying, we do not want to vote to raise the debt ceiling personally because we are mad at you and we don't 
want to answer to our voters who don't like the idea of the debt ceiling. And we don't want to let you do it easily because we think we can make it more politically painful for you if we force you to jump through these hoops and then, you know, tar you with down the line and run campaign ads against you. <laughs> and Democrats are saying, what the hell? We don't want to do all this. We all agree this should be raised. Why? We're, we're not going to we're not going to sit here while you make us do this in the most painful way possible. So let's talk about how we got into the mess we're currently in, because I think the latest increase on the debt ceiling, it was back in August 2019, and we, you know, it was suspended until July of 2021. That's passed, but the Treasury has been doing what it calls extraordinary measures to prevent a default. So they're sort of like, okay, let's cut a little bit here, cut a little bit there, delaying payments to federal employees' retirement accounts. This is already happening. Yeah, that, that, that's that's become a kind of extraordinary measures aren't that extraordinary anymore. <laughs> it's sort of the point. <laughs> They've been and this actually speaks to how like ridiculous the debt ceiling is, is the first time they started using extraordinary measures was like the 1980s, right? Like that was they they're actually sort of a, a a regular part of the process now. So last week, Janet Yellen testified before Congress. What did she say? I mean, she, <laughs> she said, I don't, I don't have the quote in front of me, but she, it's bad. You don't de- like defaulting would be catastrophic. At that point, we expect Treasury would be left with very limited resources that would be depleted quickly. It's necessary to avert a catastrophic event for our economy. The silent assumption here is that. The Treasury Department would do everything in its power to avoid defaulting on our debt, right? Like, actually, it would keep paying bondholders if at all possible. But things go wrong. And if a debt ceiling standoff lasted a really long time, something might happen where we eventually had to cave and default. Or there might be a legal challenge to the fact that we were paying bondholders but not Social Security recipients. Something could happen. And so there's nobody, and you know, least of all Janet Yellen, wants to be in that situation where we actually go over the cliff and have to try and launch a parachute. <laughs> well, and Janet Yellen also gave a date. She's like, okay, October 18th-ish is when I think this is all going to go south. October 18th is the drop-dead date, according to the Treasury. That's the problem, it, it, we don't know that for certain, right? There's a little bit of fuzziness there. It actually might be a little bit before. It might be a little bit after. The, it, we, we don't know for certain when the cash totally runs out or, you know, when we won't have enough cash to meet all of our obligations. And and that's part of the reason why doing all this at the last second and, and pushing this confrontation uh, to the brink is a really bad idea. Because maybe, like, maybe, <laughs> maybe it's more like October seventeenth or sixteenth. Yeah, maybe, so, maybe something goes wrong. Like you know, it's it's possible. We don't. We we and that's part of the reason I think Chuck Schumer is saying is we need a bill by the end of this week, um, or we need at least you know to start moving in that direction. And and so it's really not a good idea to to you know hand this in, to be working on this assignment uh, the night before. Let's put it that way. Yeah, I mean, it seemed to me that as soon as. Janet Yellen spoke, there was immediate energy behind, okay, let's let's get on it. Let's fix it. We had this spending bill already moving through the House because we were going to have a government shutdown. But here, here's a question I had, which is last week, we did pass this spending bill, you know, agreeing to keep the government open until December. Why would the Republicans agree to that but not raising the debt limit? Because they want to make raising the debt limit painful. 
right? Like that's, that's again, this comes, as my colleague Jim Newell has put it, this is all about campaign ads. Maybe I would, I would modify that a little bit. It's mostly about campaign ads. It's also about wasting floor time um, in the Senate so that Democrats can't pursue other aspects of their agenda. When we come back, how Democrats could avert this crisis, and not just in boring procedural ways. They could also have some fun. Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day a Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. BTW. Void. we prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Hey, listeners. Whether you love true crime or comedies, celebrity interviews, news, or even motivational speakers, you call the shots on what's in your podcast queue, right? And guess what? Now you can call the shots on your auto insurance, too. Enter the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. The Name Your Price tool puts you in charge of your auto insurance by working just the way it sounds. You tell Progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance. Then they'll show you a variety of coverages that fit within your budget, giving you options. Now, that's something you'll want to press play on. It's easy to start a quote, and you'll be able to choose the best option for you, fast. It's just one of the many ways you can save with Progressive Insurance. Quote today at Progressive.com to try the Name Your Price tool for yourself and join over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. As of the time we recorded this show, here's where the debt limit issue was stuck. Everyone agreed there was a problem, but Mitch McConnell was filibustering legislation that would raise the debt ceiling. The thing is, the Democrats could avert a fiscal crisis all on their own. So I asked Jordan to tell me what kind of solutions they were considering. First up was a procedural tweak. If you create a filibuster loophole, you can raise the debt limit with a straight-up party-line vote. The question with this fix, though, is whether all the Democrats could get in line behind it. The main reason that Joe Manchin, from, you know, the senator from West Virginia, and Kirsten Sinema, the senator from Arizona, the two rulers of the Senate, have said they support the filibuster is because it supposedly encourages bipartisan cooperation, right? That is not what's happening right now. That's not what's happening right now. Mitch McConnell has, in fact, announced a, you know, a, a new rule, as he, he tends to, right? He does, like, the Bill Maher thing. <laughs> new rule, like, where he says is a matter of principle that if one party controls all of Congress and the presidency, it should be on them to raise the debt ceiling on their own. So Mitch McConnell has said this from here on out should be a partisan exercise whenever possible. So that really kills the rationale for having a filibuster, right? Like if there's no possibility of bipartisan agreement, you might as well just carve out an exception saying, okay, we can uh, can suspend the debt ceiling with just a pure bare majority vote in the Senate. But to change this rule, don't you need a majority vote? So so you'd need Manchin and Sinema to agree to get rid of this rule in order to get them to raise the debt ceiling. Right. And that's the question about this approach. Will Manchin and Cinema give any ground on the filibuster? Manchin has 
at one point uh, was talking to reporters and said, this has nothing to do with the filibuster. I don't know why you're even bringing it up. We have other ways to do it. He suggested he would rather do it through budget reconciliation, which is what Mitch McConnell wants. Um, but uh, lately, he's been a little bit more quiet about it. Um, so it seems like it's at least up for discussion, but I wouldn't bet a lot of money on it happening that way. Okay. Another possible solution, which we just alluded to there, is the idea of raising the debt limit through reconciliation. And, and this is Mitch McConnell's preferred plan. I often don't agree with Mitch McConnell, but I have to say using budget reconciliation to fix the budget, it kind of makes sense to me. So why is this a bad idea? It's not a bad idea. It's just unappealing if you're a Democrat. It's distasteful. It's unpleasant. It's icky. <laughs> Why? There are a lot of hoops you have to jump through to do reconciliation. You have to pass a budget resolution, and then you need to have two voteramas where, you know, the party, the other party can just throw up amendment after amendment after amendment and make you vote on them. And usually it's stuff that's kind of designed to embarrass the other party. Um, there's also committee time you have to devote to it. I mean, it's it's drawn out. And that has been the excuse that Democrats have made is that, oh, th this would take too much time. It would be drawn out. It would be, uh, you know, it, it, there are all sorts of questions procedurally about whether we could do it. To be fair, Mitch McConnell has been saying you should do it this way since the summer. And they didn't make the time, but right. I, I take the point. The, the main concern among Democrats is that if you do it through reconciliation, the conventional wisdom is that you have to actually say how much you want to raise the debt limit by. You have to put a number on it. The way Congress has been dealing with the debt limit recently is they have just been, quote, suspending it ever since essentially 2013. They've been suspending the debt limit, which basically just means, you know, they're saying uh, until the 10th of whenever where, where the, the debt limit is is suspended. They just give a date. They give a date. They don't give a number. Right. And the problem with giving a number is that someone can then put a number in a campaign ad against you. And. My personal feeling on this is that Democrats should be much less concerned about <laughs> whether someone runs a campaign ad about whether they raise the debt ceiling. I don't think many voters would fundamentally care, but there are enough moderate Democrats in difficult districts who think that their voters care about debt and deficits that they are a little freaked out by that. And so they really, really don't want to. Plus, it's just there's the sense of, you know, just being kind of aggrieved that Republicans are making them do this dance all over again. They, they're really just resentful. They still remember 2011 and are mad about it. They're sort of stamping their feet like it shouldn't have to be this way. So. Right. And like they're, they're right. It shouldn't be. But unfortunately, this is where we are. And frankly, it is in their power to do it through budget reconciliation. And, and one of the upsides is that if they were to go that route, they could raise it high enough that you would essentially eliminate the debt limit. What kind of numbers are we talking about here? I mean, just however high you want it. People pick their favorite. You know, they talk one about zillion dollars, one quadrillion numbers. Uh, one one <laughs> favorite on Twitter is sixty nine sextillion dollars, which you can understand <laughs> why people are think that's hilarious on Twitter. <laughs> you know, there are all sorts of options. The question is, if Democrats actually did, you know, just you know, bite the bullet and do it through reconciliation, would Joe Manchin and Kirsten Cinema agree to effectively eliminate the debt limit for good? Would they go the 69 sextillion route or would they just want to raise it enough to get us through December 2022? Um, and my guess, because we're on the worst of all possible timelines, is that they would want the more um, modest uh, hike that just puts off our next conflict over this issue until a year or two from now. OK, so you've laid out a couple of quote unquote solutions that feel at best uncomfortable, at, at worst impossible. And that's how we get to these crazy ideas, like mint a trillion dollar coin. How does that help? All right. 
Let's talk about the damn coin. <laughs> Where do you put a trillion dollar coin? You're not carrying it around in no, your pocket. No, you put it you, you put it at the Fed. So, okay, here's the story of the trillion dollar coin. Years ago, a commenter on a blog noted that there was this obscure federal law that allowed the treasury to mint platinum coins in essentially whatever denomination they wanted. And so in 2011, when we hit the first debt ceiling crisis, people had this idea, said, well, if we hit the debt ceiling, um, actually, there's nothing in the law that says we we should take advantage of the loophole in this platinum coin law Uh, and just mint a one or two trillion dollar coins. And then what would essentially happen is that the Treasury Department would take those over to the Fed and deposit them in their account at the Fed, and that would allow us to pay our bills. (laughs) Um, and so this came up in 2011. Some people got really into the idea. And then it really caught fire in the 2013 standoff where like mint the coin became this hashtag on Twitter. People were talking about it. It sounds like something you talk about in your dorm room when you're really high. Yeah. Um, but like, I mean, serious people discuss, you know, Paul Krugman got behind this. Um, a lot of people like, you know, have like, you know, it was, it was, it became a real media thing. And the Obama administration eventually had to come out and say, we don't think this is legal. And the Federal Reserve wouldn't go along with it anyway. It would not accept the damn coin. This is not happening. We're not minting, we're not doing this, this clown shit. <laughs> sort of the, the way the Obama administration responded to it. It's like, we're going to come up with an adult solution. And what a lot of people say is like, listen, the coin sounds stupid, but so is the debt ceiling. And this is a way to short circuit the debt ceiling and get around it. So it might be crazy. It might be crazy like a fox. It might be crazy. It's, you know, people people love their loopholes, right? Another option that people have talked about is just invoking the 14th Amendment and for Joe Biden to say that the debt ceiling is unconstitutional because the 14th Amendment says very specifically the debts in the United States shall not be questioned. The issue here is that he doesn't have to do any of this stuff. Democrats could just raise the debt ceiling. Right. Like it's in their power to do it. And so. So take the sane option is what you're saying. Yeah. I mean, I think part of the issue with minting the coin, too, is it doesn't really solve the problem that Democrats are looking at right now. Right. Like the thing that Democrats are worried about is that they're going to take political heat for raising the debt ceiling. If the Biden administration like literally resorted to, you know, printing money or minting money to deal with this situation, it would get, there would be attack ads over, you know, over that instead. You would see hysterics about, oh, you know, oh God, we're, we're, we're Zimbabwe now, right? Like people, people don't like the idea of just running printing presses. So it doesn't actually resolve the political problem that we're currently facing. You know, if you're worried about taking political heat, if that's why you're not doing this by a reconciliation, well, you know, the, the the truly extraordinary, goofy, cartoonish measures that still might legally pass muster aren't, aren't actually going to solve the political issue. Jordan Weissman, thank you so much for joining me. Of course. Thanks for having me on. Jordan Weissman is Slate's senior economics editor. After Jordan and I spoke, Mitch McConnell flinched, and he offered Democrats a deal He said he would allow a vote on a temporary debt limit extension. But that extension would only go until December. If Democrats accept this deal, it would temporarily stave off the fight they're having right now, while setting up yet another debt ceiling fight just before the holidays. And that's the show. What Next is produced by Davis Land, Elena Schwartz, Mary Wilson, Daniel Hewitt, and Carmel Del Shad. 
We are led by Allison Benedict and Alicia Montgomery. Tomorrow, stay tuned to this feed for What Next TBD with Lizzie O'Leary. She is going to tell you everything you need to know about Facebook's no good, very bad week. Thanks for listening. I will catch you back in this feed after the holiday. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.